This is a Federal News Network podcast. EPA senior officials failed to follow standard operating procedures in 2018 when they signed off on permit renewals for certain pesticides, including leaving scientific documents out of that decision. For details, we turn to health scientist in the office of the inspector general at the EPA, Alton Reed. Mr. Reed, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Nice to meet you. And what did you discover here is, first of all, is the signing off on renewals for permits for pesticides, something that is a regular occurrence at EPA? Well, the Decamba pesticide registration was mentioned in interviews related to a larger body of work that our office undertook on scientific integrity concerns. Based on those concerns, we conducted this evaluation to determine whether EPA policies and procedures were effective in addressing stakeholder issues. And by the way, these concerns, do they come from a whistleblower? I can't really say anything much with that. That's just EPA OIG policy. Okay. But anyway, you were alerted to this in some manner and decided to take a look at this particular issue. So what happened? That's pretty complex. I'm going to try to simplify it as much as possible. The EPA pesticide registration process essentially helps to ensure that any pesticide approved for use in the United States doesn't have any unreasonable adverse effects on the environment. That's a broad mandate under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, also known as FIFRA. EPA scientists evaluate information from all kinds of sources. Some of those sources include academia, published scientific documents, other government agencies, and pesticide companies. EPA reviews data to determine whether to register a pesticide product for use or to determine whether specific restrictions are necessary on that product. Also, EPA can conditionally do registrations of pesticides, where the EPA can conditionally amend an existing registration to add an additional use This occurs when the agency finds that it has satisfactory data pertaining to the proposed new use. Oh, and one last thing. The EPA has an Office of Pesticide Programs, which is responsible for overseeing the pesticide registration process. Within that office, there are certain procedures that should occur ahead of pesticide registration decisions. And what is the basic procedure for signing off on allowing a pesticide to be used? Well, when you approve pesticides, it goes through the registration process within the Office of Pesticide Programs within the EPA. The EPA has different divisions that do those type of registrations. There's a registration division, a B division, and an EFED division. Those different divisions work together and try to register products whenever they're given to them. There's a lot of people that have to have some say in that decision, correct? Yes, there's multiple people who are involved. There's different levels from senior managers to political appointees and scientists themselves. Yeah, so the scientists weigh in with what they know from scientific research and evidence, but it's the political officials that actually do the sign-off? Yes, there are political officials sometimes involved, but not always. In this case with Dicamba, there was an administrative level official who actually did look at the policies and procedures that were involved with this, and he did go through some of the documents, but that's not typical. Got it. So were the documents then not properly considered in this sign-off? Is that what happened in this particular case? It's not the fact that documents were necessarily properly considered. It's just that in this particular case, there were documents given, but they weren't necessarily taken in the form that were given from the scientists. They were either changed or sources were either looked at in a particular way that were more towards the appointed officials, policymakers, and what they were looking at, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so how were you able to discover this? Well, initially, we had some concerns that came about in an OIG setting where it was during and it was a scientific integrity concern but it was mentioned in a larger body of work in one of our interviews. We specifically had interviews with multiple scientists, and those scientists gave us different ideas of what was going on. And during those interviews, they explained some of the processes that were incorrect or some of the processes they felt that were hampering the work specifically. 
Yes, in your report, you said we found that staff felt constrained or muted in sharing their concerns on the DeCamba registrations. And so that's not the way scientists are supposed to feel at the EPA because it's constantly saying that it's a scientifically driven organization, correct? Yes, that is correct. We're speaking with Alton Reed. He's a health scientist in the Office of the Inspector General at the EPA. And by the way, what is DeCamba, if I have the word right, pesticides? What, what's the significance of that particular type of pesticide? Well, DeCamba is a popular pesticide utilized within agricultural crops. It's an herbicide, actually, and it was registered in the United States in 1967. Because of its wide usage, that's what makes it popular, and that's what makes this particular interesting to a lot of advocacy groups and other groups that might be involved with dicamba and its registration process. Yeah, so this is something that might be dropped from an airplane or sprayed out of some kind of farm equipment? Well, I can't go into too much depth with that because there's different uses, and that depends on the pesticide registration process and how the label works. But I wouldn't say it's dropped out of a plane, but there are over-the-top uses, which was something we kind of looked into when we were doing this investigation. I see. So that this was a re-registration or a renewal of permission to use this stuff in the United States, because you said it's Mm -hmm. been around since the 60s, so it has been used up until now. Yes. There was actually, for us, we were looking at background information from the 2016 registration, but we specifically focused on the 2018 registration of Dicamba. Got it. And then this issue ended up in court, didn't it? Yes. It actually did end up in court, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, to be more specific, they vacated the three registrations that were done in 2018 because of issues that came about that we actually spoke about in our report. Okay, and what is the status of that registration at this point? Well, in 2020, they did approve of new registrations, but right now with the registrations that are going on and what we did in our report, we are working with the agency on our recommendations that we ended up filing with them, and they're going through a 60-day process with us, and we're trying to find something of a resolution process for corrective actions. Looking at one recommendation in particular, which I'll explain later, but that one recommendation with the agency, we're trying to work with them to find something that kind of balances our intent of our original recommendations for what they're doing right now or what they plan on doing. And just review the recommendations for us so we can understand what you think the agency ought to be doing differently. So basically our recommendations are based off EPA deviating from typical procedures in its 2018 Dicamba registration decision. Our first recommendation has to do with senior policy managers and policymakers. We wanted them to document changes of scientific opinion, analyses, and conclusions. And we wanted them to, if there was anything changed inside of any of the documents they gave us, we wanted them to document any changes or any alterations that they were doing. Secondly, we recommended an assistant administrator-level verification statement that has to do with scientific integrity policy. If anything was being done within a pesticide that actually made it to their desk or they were doing anything relevant to what was going on with an immediate office, we wanted the assistant administrator to do a verification sign-off of what was going on exactly. And lastly, we recommended annually conducting and documenting training for all the staff that are involved because we wanted to promote a commitment to scientific integrity policy and to promote a culture of scientific integrity. So basically then, to sum up the recommendations, you are looking for more accountability and transparency in the process. If someone changes a document or adds something, you want to make sure everybody knows it, and that way there's no subterfuge going on. Yes, Tom, that's correct. We really were looking more so to create a system of accountability and internal controls, and we definitely wanted the agency to be a little bit more transparent with anything that has to do with scientific integrity policy. And so far has the, I guess there's a new regime there running EPA since all this happened, and I imagine they accept those recommendations. Well, that goes to the process we were speaking about earlier. They accepted two recommendations, our first one and our third one within our report. 
The second one is the one that we're still working with them with, and they're within a 60-day process with the agency right now in the OIG. And we're trying to like find that balance for our intent of recommendations within corrective actions. All right. We'll have to see how that one comes out. But in the meantime, Alton Reed is a health scientist in the Office of Inspector General at the EPA. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it, Tom. And thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, 
uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, 
but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government and providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.